This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Here to help me introduce our next guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Wow, Jen, we've been waiting for this one for a long time. So today our guest is Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. Um, A little context for our listeners. We're interviewing Governor Whitmer on Monday, January 11th. So just five days after the siege of the U.S. Capitol by armed mobs. Um, She's at her home. So you might hear her family a little in the background, but we're super excited. I'm so excited. And I'm kind of glad we waited because Michigan experienced similar events at their own Capitol building last spring uh, that was directed at Governor Whitmer in reaction to her coronavirus restrictions. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember seeing it all in the news, but given that there was an entire year's worth of news each day in 2020, um, I just want to remind people of the timeline. So Michigan had its first COVID-19 cases in early March, and in less than a week, Governor Whitmer had closed K-12 schools, then bars, restaurants, gyms, and most public places, and initiated a statewide stay-at-home order in effect March 24th. At that time, and still to this day, Whitmer has been very outspoken about the inadequacy of the federal response, especially the lack of PPE and ventilators to the states. There not being a mask mandate leading to this moment in late March. Don't call the woman in Michigan. It doesn't make any difference what happens. Uh, I definitely remember that one. And funny thing, he did not have a similar observation to make about other governors, male governors, um, who were similarly critical of him. Absolutely. And just after that in April, um, plus a few Trump tweets later, armed and angry mobs stormed the Michigan state capitol. One of the so-called protests was named Operation Gridlock, and another was called the American Patriot Rally. Both were aimed at Governor Whitmer's lockdown policies and calling to get her out of office or worse, kill her. There were Confederate flags, Nazi imagery and more at these rallies, a lot like the ones we saw at the Capitol the other day. Um, And then in May, a man was charged with making online threats to kill Governor Gretchen Whitmer Mm -hmm. and the state's attorney general, Dana Nessel. In October, the FBI revealed that they'd stopped a plot to kidnap Whitmer from her vacation home and kill her. And oh, wait, this Saturday, we also learned that Whitmer received a letter saying she had to pay two million dollars in Bitcoin or state employees would be killed. So that's just a little bit of what's been going on the past year for Governor Whitmer and Michigan at large. I totally missed the thing about the Bitcoin. Yeah. uh, Ransom. Wow. Um, And one thing that's notable that we'll definitely talk about is that Michigan has a Republican controlled legislature and some of those prominent members have been part of the protests, both outside the Capitol, helping to organize them and at some point succeeding in passing laws that limited her control to manage the coronavirus crisis. Yeah, that's super important. I noticed that her lockdowns did seem somewhat effective in the beginning. The state was Mm -hmm. able to avoid some really high numbers in March and April, even though Detroit had comparable surges to some other big cities. But then things got a lot worse after Governor Whitmer lost some legal control. Uh, But, you know, all that stuff about Michigan doesn't really surprise me because it has the state has a really dark history with paramilitary groups, especially the Michigan militia which first got a lot of attention after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. Yeah, I was just reading about this. I saw an article that a former FBI director in Detroit said that at least at one point, every known right-wing extremist group had a cohort of sorts in Michigan, and they had no idea why. Yeah, um, I definitely want to talk to Governor Whitmer about that history and then what should be done to hold hold those people accountable, um, both the ones inciting violence in Michigan and in D.C., I'm wondering her take on the 
response now as compared to her personal experience. And if she thinks Trump should be removed from office at this point, you know, plus just how she copes with all the fear and anxiety and stress of it all, I think we can all learn from it. Yeah, I mean, she definitely gets more negativity than most governors. So I probably should mention here that she is one of just nine women governors in the country. There have only been 44 ever right. and still 20 states haven't elected a female governor. So maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> maybe it does. Maybe it does. Good morning, Governor. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm happy to be with you. It's going to be good. It is going to be good. It's going to be good. As you know, I've thought a lot about all this stuff, so it's going to be good. I'm happy to be with you. So last Wednesday, we had arguably one of the most devastating days to democracy. We saw an angry mob break into the United States Capitol with the intention of overturning a free and fair election. I was in Atlanta when it happened. You know, I, I went to, down to Georgia to cover the elections for the circus. And that was such a win for democracy. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I was happy about the outcome, but just in terms of how many people turned out to vote, right? And then I was there in Atlanta when I got the news about the siege um, at the Capitol. And it was just, you know, sort of a devastating image to see. But then my next thought was of you and Michigan. I know you're living all of this moment to moment and dealing with crises in that moment, but I feel like there is even a clearer picture now that can emerge from what you've dealt with. And that's what I want to talk about today, particularly since you've dealt with all of it while being female and uh, that's earned you a couple of nicknames. I love Big Grudge. <laughs> that's my favorite of your nicknames. Uh, that woman from Michigan, less so, but... Uh, I want to try to dive into this and see what kind of clearer pictures emerge for what you're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. I think Wednesday, you know, like you, I woke up in a state of euphoria seeing what happened with the election. I saw you had posted a picture of your <laughs> Stacey Abrams candle. That's right. <laughs> I love Stacey. She is a force to be reckoned with. And I know so many people were hoping she might run, but man, has the world been better served by her sticking true to what she wanted to see happen? And, you know, it just really was phenomenal. Yeah. But by the end of that day, I sat in the family room with my girls watching what was playing out at our nation's capital. Just, I mean, almost inconsolable. This is what has been happening in Michigan for a long time. I was talking to my friend Debbie Dingle this weekend, Congresswoman, and she said, everyone's been asking me why I'm not rattled. She said, I've tried to explain to him, this is what we've been living with in Michigan. When Donald Trump singled her out and said awful things from the stage about her deceased husband, you know, the dean of the Congress. Yeah. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down. He'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay, don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up, I don't know. When he singled me out, or Congresswoman Tlaib, or Mary Barra, for that matter, the CEO of General Motors. We're all Michigan women. We've all been treated differently than our male counterparts. We've all dealt and seen the horrible wrath that has happened because of it. And so as the nation was kind of reeling from these images in Washington, D.C., all I could think was, God, 
these people haven't been paying attention. When it first started, you know, I was one of the first governors, I think, to nationally observe that there was no national strategy around COVID. Right. And I know that really irked the president. And that is when I became a central part of his focus. And it remains true to this day. We're 10 months into this pandemic, and there still is no national strategy around vaccines, much less testing and PPE. Yeah. So I stand by my assessment of the federal government's failure. But by the same token, as soon as he turned his attention to me, the death threats started. They started against me, against my family, against people in the administration. I called the White House. I called Mike Pence directly. I called on the Republican leaders here in Michigan to denounce it and to call out this domestic terrorism. And none of them did a darn thing, even after the plot. Now we see that the threats have turned to them, that they're speaking up. And I'm grateful that they are. We all have to take on this domestic terrorism. But I think about how much damage might have been avoided if they had spoken up when it was turned on me or Dr. Fauci or secretaries of state across the country. A lot of people probably heard about the plot against you. For those who aren't familiar, in October, six people were arrested for a plot to kidnap you. They had a plan to do a mock trial. I mean, I can't like I can barely even say this and then execute you. In Wisconsin, right, it was really planned out. They were preparing to purchase bombs to detonate as a distraction. So law enforcement would be distracted while they kidnap you. It was a very specific thing. In April, there were protests at your Capitol. I remember seeing photos of people with guns standing outside of your office in the Capitol building on April 30th, where protesters came into the Capitol. They tried to get on the House floor. They did not succeed, unlike what happened on the Senate floor last week. So I think people have some sense that there has been real opposition to you motivated, but don't understand that this is institutionalized with Republican leaders in your state, that the House Speaker, the Senate Majority Leader, are parts of all of these efforts to stop you from managing COVID. The Speaker of the House, his father had organized one of the protests against you. This is not just, you know, Michiganders operating in a vacuum. You know, some of this is being led by actual elected officials. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I think from the onset, I, I think that was one of the earliest kind of stunning moments for me, standing in my office downtown Lansing and looking out. And I knew that there was going to be a protest. That's how it was billed, that it was people who were unhappy with the policy changes that I had to make to keep people safe when we had community spread that was just ravaging our state. But when I looked out the window, what I saw was something very different than an organic protest of people disagreeing about policy. It was a Trump rally. There was literally a Trump float there. It was underwritten by an organization that is funded by the DeVos family. And we all know Betsy DeVos now, but they fund a lot of the Republican Party organizations and efforts. There were Confederate flags, Jen. That's not something you see in Michigan regularly, right? right? We're right. a union state. We're as north as you can get. Right. Um, Nazi propaganda. There was a doll with dark hair hanging from a noose. The rhetoric was so over the top so early on. And the Speaker of the House 
participated. The Senate Majority Leader shared a stage and met with these organizers, some of whom were eventually indicted on the plot to kidnap and kill me. Yep. So when Donald Trump tweets, I should negotiate with these very fine people who are pictured with automatic rifles outside my office that have been egged on by him and Republican leaders here in Michigan and tells me I should negotiate them because they're very fine people. It's just, it's galling to see the exact same thing playing out, not just in Michigan. I mean, versions of this, not nearly as intense or vitriolic or scary as what's happened here in Michigan, but versions of this have been playing out across the country. We really saw that very clearly in Washington, D.C. Some of these people even have nice things to say about you. I've seen, you know, the speaker talked about how you're, you know, really good at getting things done and take a pragmatic approach to things and can, you know, be close with environmentalists as well as be willing to sit down and talk to industry too. You know, they, they actually can admire you and your skills, but there's just something about you that, you know, it's not as if other states, other governors are not trying to put restrictions in, but it is in Michigan with you where these men are organizing at a government level to stop you from managing the crisis. I mean, that's what it was all about, right? There was a court case. There was legislation to try to limit your power to manage the COVID crisis. Right. So early on, Detroit in particular, the Detroit region was one of the places in the nation that was just exploding with COVID. Uh, Same time as New York City and New Orleans and Chicago. And we had to take some drastic actions because I remember being on a call with the White House and the president famously said that day, I'm not your shipping clerk. We were trying to get masks and we were literally going into a weekend where we had one shift worth of masks in our Detroit based hospitals. And so I took to the airwaves to try to get some help. Soon as he turned his attention to me and started attacking me personally, The legislature, who had been pretty good to work with up until that point, turned on me as well. It was like, as soon as Donald Trump focused on me, the whole landscape changed. Mm. And they wouldn't extend the state of emergency. They started suing me to challenge my emergency powers. They started attempts to take those powers away from me, to recall me or impeach me. I mean, every tool, legitimate or not, that they thought they had, they started to use to undermine the effort. And I really think that had Donald Trump risen to this challenge and said, we're all in this together, let's rally against COVID, my life certainly here on the ground would have been different, but maybe his would have been too. Yes. I wonder if he might've gotten reelected. I think that's a very real possibility if he'd rallied us to this cause against this common enemy and united us, as opposed to the destruction and devastation he wreaked instead. It's such an easy thing to do. This is how leaders prove themselves in a moment of crisis. And I had not made the connection that it was not until Trump started attacking you that the legislature all of a sudden didn't want to deal with your, wow. Their leader turned and they all followed suit. One thing that has struck me about COVID is that having restrictions is like a lot of power. And I've observed that other state, other governors aren't getting the kind of blowback you have. But it's like there's a sense it's like there is a woman with all this control over me and how I operate. And if I can go to work and if I cannot, it seems like the blowback on you, starting with Trump, 
seems to be about power and having control. And what, what do you think angers people so much in particular about a woman in power? It's a good question. You know, when you look at countries around the world who are led by women, they have fared better <laughs> with COVID than others. And I do think it's often because women know where their expertise ends and seek out the smartest people they can find and actually listen to them and make informed decisions. There certainly are men that do that as well. I don't mean to say that that's only a a female trait, but I think that's been a part of the success. That's my own theory. I, I don't know, but I think undisputed that countries that have female leaders have fared better throughout COVID. That's just kind of the lay of the land. It was interesting. One of the legislators likened my decisions to having neutered them. And that was a very graphic and gendered comment that that was made. And I thought that was really um, interesting. Revealing. I would give anything not to have to use these powers. They are extraordinary powers. This is an extraordinary moment. The primary role of any leader is to keep the people safe. That's primary. And Whether it's me in Michigan or it is Mike DeWine, Republican in Ohio, we're dealing with a different intensity of a very similar theme. The intensity is just much hotter in Michigan, and part of it is because of gender. It's just a fact. The language that's used, the reaction, the intensity of it. My pal J.B. Pritzker from Illinois said, gee, Gretchen, you're just getting a uniquely different treatment than the rest of us. We're all being treated pretty poorly. He said, why do you think that is? And of course, he was, I think, being sarcastic. Yes. We all know. Yes, we all know that woman from Michigan. But then there's also Big Gretch. And for people who don't know, the Big Gretch is a song that a hip hop group from Detroit created about you. Big Gretch! Throw the bumps on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about the stress. We got Big Gretch. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the bumps on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about the stress. What I love about it's so sweet is the fresh in a new dress. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. (laughs) It's so sweet. G-Mat Cash is a Detroit rapper, and he made this song. And the funniest thing is, you know, I'm named after my two grandmothers, who are these fierce women, Gretchen and Esther. And Grandma Gretchen told me, never let anyone call you Gretch. Your name's Gretchen. You know, so I've always kind of had that in the back of my head. Yeah. And my family thinks it's so funny because I never let anyone call me Gretch. Yeah. And of course, what woman wants to be called big, right? So, yeah. When the nickname started, I was like, Big Gretch, you know, and then I came to understand this is a nickname bestowed on me by the people of Detroit. Yes. It is with love and support. And now I love it. So anyone can call me Big Gretch. I know it's a term of endearment, but it was, it, it took me a minute. And that just goes to show that if someone's treating you with kindness, you can call me whatever you want. We ain't even about the stress. We got Big Gretch. All. all right, we're going to let GMAC Cash have the last word here about our guest Gretchen Whitmer as we take a quick break from this episode of Just Something About Her. We ain't even about the stress. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Gretch. Welcome back to a very special episode of Just Something About Her with Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. 
I remember that I came to in September to interview you about COVID and it was Constitution Day that day, uh, September 17th. And Bill Barr, who was then the Attorney General of the United States, came to Michigan to give a speech about Constitution Day where he compared your COVID restrictions to slavery. That day at the Capitol, before I came to talk to you, there was a pro-Second Amendment rally, you know, so lots of assault weapons. Um, it was the one place I found that people were not willing to talk to me. Most places I go, Trump supporters, even ones who recognize who I am and my Democratic uh, lineage are willing to talk to me. But this is one place where the anger, distrust was so palpable. I remember seeing a guy sort of patrolling one of the walkways with his gun and he was walking back and forth. And I was like, are, is he not going to let me walk by? And I remember having the thought, are you trying to protect America for me? Are you trying to protect America from me? Can you tell us something about this history of militias in Michigan? I know it goes back to the 90s. I know that the people, I don't know if people know this, that the Oklahoma City bombers were, had attended Michigan militia meetings. But do you have a sense of where this comes from? Well, first, I'm going to make an observation that I haven't really connected until you were just kind of recounting all of that. But that moment that Bill Barr was here in Michigan, the FBI was well into their investigation on the plot to kidnap and murder me. And he knew it. And he still came to Michigan and used words like slavery. And, you know, you just think about that, right? This is when locker up chants were going on as well. The feds, the FBI was well involved in the investigation. I knew about it at that point in time. And yet here's the United States Attorney General whipping people up, even knowing that. And if he didn't know it, which is what he testified to Congresswoman Jayapal when she asked him, then he was completely incompetent. I mean, it's just you think about that for a second. Yeah. It's just kind of galling. It just hit me. No, it's chilling. And the and and Governor, I mean, the, you know, liberate Michigan, all of these tweets from Trump too, which which I yesterday went back to go look at his old tweets. And of course they're gone because his account's been locked, because that's how serious and dangerous what he's been doing is. It's been inciting mm -hmm. violence. And you've said that, you know, when you, you learned of the plot, you never were scared for your own security. And when I heard about the plot, I thought it was terrible, but I thought, well, they caught them. It's not something that got acted upon, but I don't feel that security anymore. I feel real fear for you now. How, how are you feeling about all that now? Well, you know, as, as you were asking, the Michigan militia is a reality that we know it's a, not a huge group of people, but they are to be taken very seriously. I think that they pose a very real threat, but I feel safe, but I'm fortunate I have the Michigan State Police. I live at the governor's residence, which is very secure. Despite that, we've had some things happen that are concerning. We know that the chatter is still out there. But we also have a secretary of state here in Michigan who ran a fair and secure and safe election. We had over five and a half billion people vote, which is amazing. It was a big increase over uh, 2016, right? That's right. A huge increase. And we should all be proud of that. Every vote got counted. And yet these protesters show up on her front lawn, scaring the heck out of her and her young child and husband. I mean, these are people who are doing the work that they were hired to do, 
trying to protect our votes. I'm trying to protect people's lives. And yet this is what we're dealing with in this environment. One tweet can set off a series of events that could cost someone their lives. And that's why I've been trying to get people to take this seriously, call it domestic terrorism and take it on because we cannot let this continue. I know that the plotters against you were indicted in December. I know six people from Michigan were arrested in D.C. Do you think it's important that particularly some of the worst cases we saw in Washington last week, that those people are held accountable, that they're prosecuted? I feel like sometimes we don't pursue crimes that are committed by, you know, sort of right wing groups. Absolutely. There's like a weird coddling that happens there. Like they don't really mean it or they're just a little off. They're misguided, not that they're committing crimes and they're dangerous. How do you think we hold these people accountable? I think no one's above the law. And it's important that we have accountability, that people are prosecuted. And to the fullest extent of the law, it's very serious. The plot to assassinate a governor, you know, if... I just, I think we're inundated with so much upsetting information and horrible events that sometimes we don't pause and really take in the enormity and the seriousness of it. That's really true of your case in particular, right? I mean, you look at these facts of this case, it sounds like something from ISIS, where they would kidnap a high-ranking public official, put them on a fake trial and then kill them. That's ISIS. It is. That's domestic terrorism that is playing out here in real time in America. We have to take it seriously. We don't make excuses for it. We prosecute. And I'm one that I'm always about building bridges, seeking to understand. I don't vilify people for their political positions. I want to seek to find common ground. But this is criminal behavior. This is malicious intent. And it's something very different than a political philosophy. You're right. If someone in another country had planned that plot against you, the entire country would have rallied to your side. It would have been taken very seriously. But because it was done in the United States by militia members who had this bizarre sense of justice and their own righteousness, and they're aligned with the president of the United States, Let's repeat that. They're aligned with the President of the United States. It's just not taken as seriously. I, I think you're right that we've been trying to cope through this last four years. I mean, this is, you know, one of the things that's startling about Trump's Twitter account being suspended is that I think in order to get through the last four years, we would sort of lie to ourselves that what he was saying wasn't being taken seriously or he didn't mean it when he said liberate Michigan or Democrats are taking him literally and we shouldn't do that. And we found all these coping mechanisms. And now the closer we get to him leaving, the more terrifying each day that he's in power seems. It's true. You know, I talked to Secretary Clinton about this not long ago and I heard it was great. She said, how do you handle, you know, all this ugliness? And, and I told her, I said, I can't read every indictment. Right. You know, I cannot inundate myself with it because I have to do my job. And so to a certain extent, the fact that I've got the state police and the FBI who've done a phenomenal job and kept me safe gives me the space to spend my energy fighting COVID and working to re-engage our economy and keep people safe. Because I just, 
I can't go there someday. I'll probably have the opportunity to process everything that's happened. But I do think you're right. We're all trying to cope through this moment. But it's important that we pause and recognize the seriousness of these individual moments because it's telling a bigger story that's happening in this nation. And we can't let the story be written without us understanding it and working to put it in the right direction for the majority of us and for the the democracy itself. Since uh, last Wednesday, has there been any change in the tone uh, regret maybe from some of the Michigan, uh, the state level, some of the Republican lawmakers there? No, I unfortunately haven't seen a change. One of them rode the bus and went out to D.C. His wife is a co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party. Yeah, I saw that. You know, I made phone calls early on, as I said, and said, can you help lower the heat? That's the, the phrase I use when I talk to Mike Pence and when I talk to the leaders here in the Michigan legislature. It's a very non-judgmental way to approach it. Smart, right? Lower the heat. Right. Just lower the heat. Bring down the rhetoric. And none of them did a darn thing. And when the plot happened, none of them even picked up the phone to say, are you okay? And I think that was the most, you know, that's just stunning. Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts, called. Mm-hmm. The governor of Utah called. So some of my fellow governors did. But... Very little Republican leadership to check in, uh, to see my humanity, to care about my family. I mean, this is not a part of holding office that should become an expectation. Every one of us, no matter if we agree with your politics or not, should recognize we are all elected officials doing the best we can for human beings. And we should care about one another and not just preach it on one day of the week, but to live it. Wow, that's so shocking. I can't believe that. And then there are even more rallies planned for this weekend. I want to ask you about that and how Michigan is preparing. But first, let's take a quick break to pay some bills on Just Something About Her. All right, we're back with Michigan Governor Whitmer on Just Something About Her discussing the armed mobs at the Capitol last week and how she thinks there needs to be arrests made and people held accountable. But now I want to talk about how we can move forward from all of this as a society. Do you have any sense of the aftermath in Michigan, what it's going to be like post-Trump? Well, I think states all across the country are worried about our security for the next 10 days and probably for a period beyond the swearing-in of President Biden. I know that there are lots of organizing efforts, whether they're able to communicate on Twitter or Facebook or it's parlor. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we all have to prepare for. And and that has to happen nationwide. And you mean it when you say prepare for it because you know that it's all real. It's definitely real. I've chatted with a number of my colleagues, whether it's Tim Walls in Minnesota or Laura Kelly in Kansas or Gavin Newsom in California. We all have an element of this that we're worried about. And it's about our safety. And I've just mentioned Democratic governors, but I've talked to Republican governors as well, whether it's Mike DeWine in Ohio or, you know, Larry Hogan, et cetera. Yeah. This is a concern for every office holder that we've now got a contingent of people that are being fed a distorted reality and are taking action based on it. And it's a threat to us all in our democracy. I've seen that some groups are planning an armed march, as they call it, 
for the 17th prior to the inauguration of Biden. There's something, a million man militia march planned for the inaugural. Are you aware of specific plans in Lansing or other parts of Michigan between now and the election? Well, I, I do think that the 17th is a date that we all are aware of as an organizing date. It's a Sunday and we have got conversations about how do we just keep people safe and what does success look like? And success always looks like everyone goes home, no destruction happens. And that's, that's what our goal is. Everyone goes home safely. That's always our goal. Right. We will be prepared if things take a turn. There needs to be action. We will not look like Washington, D.C. We'll make sure that we've got a thoughtful, robust plan ready. But it is, it's always my hope that while people have a right to congregate, that it doesn't turn into lawlessness. And if it does, we'll be prepared. We're about 10 days out now from Biden taking over. Do you think Trump should be removed from office? Is this something you've talked to other governors or, you know, congressional leaders about? I haven't chatted with many people about that. I know Congress has a role around impeachment. It's interesting to watch this cabinet, you know, start to fall apart. I don't know if it's because they don't agree with the Trump philosophy that supported this thing that happened on last Wednesday, or if it's because they don't want to take a vote on the 25th Amendment. So I don't know if it's a profile in courage or if they've come to their senses or if they're just avoiding doing the responsibility that they probably should do. But what happens in the next 10 days, I think, is the most important piece is that we're going to get Joe Biden sworn in. The Biden-Harris administration will get off to a fast start. They're doing so much work. We've been working with them. Have you worked with them on COVID in particular or in the vaccine? And we have all of the above, as well as conversation around economic reengagement. Mm. So I'm glad that we've built that kind of a relationship that my team and I are ready to do whatever we can because their success is our success and vice versa. And I think that's the only thing that keeps us going through these toughest days is knowing that there really is light at the end of this tunnel. And it begins with that. It continues with vaccines and economic reengagement. And I think building up our democracy and confidence in it. A thing I have noticed about you, when I was there in September, I made a note that, you know, I saw a lot of anti-Wimmer stuff, a lot of anti-Wimmer stuff all over the state, in addition to the pro-Second Amendment rally where there were, again, dolls and signs and all of this about you. And I made a note that you don't seem to wear the attacks as heavily as my former boss, Hillary Clinton, did, who were, I think... I felt this way. I think she felt this way that when she was getting really attacked, we felt like there was something she had done wrong. There was something we had done wrong that we need to respond to, or it was some fault of hers. And I had the sense that you don't feel that way. You managed to not take this personally. Am I right about that? How do we interpret that? I know that the vast majority of people in the state are doing the right thing and they know that we're doing what we have to do. Yep. There is without question a loud segment that does not agree. And even amongst them, there's an even louder, smaller segment that is what you're seeing in terms of the protests and the signs and, and that kind of a thing. Hillary Clinton, you know, she was the, the first one to walk through all of this and took a lot on and made it easier for people like me to do what we're doing now. And I recognize it. I'm grateful because you see so many fierce women now standing up and doing what they know to be the right thing to do because she gave us 
some space and credibility to do that. One thing I, I heard you say on the Hillary podcast actually was that you seek to understand, you know, one thing we've learned this last four years is leadership really matters. And the model that leaders set for us has enormous implications for the country. When you say that you seek to understand, can you just leave us with a, a thought about what you mean by that, how you act on that? I think it's important to recognize none of us is perfect or has all of the answers or all of the information. And every one of us has some humanity to be found. I'm not going to find common ground with everyone, but I'm going to try to find common ground with the vast majority of people. And I remember when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, seeing a speech by Bobby Kennedy, where he said, we must seek to understand. And I gave a very similar speech at the Women's March back in 2018, was it? The first one was 17. 2017, okay, is the first one. And I had someone say, that was really a brave thing to do with this group. And I said, I don't, I didn't think it was particularly brave. If we want to lead, if we want to rally people to any sort of a cause, whether it's against COVID or it is against efforts to destroy our democracy, we have to find the common ground to do it. Governor Whitmer, that gives me some hope. One governor operating in a state as important as Michigan, that matters. And I really appreciate your time today. It's good to see you. Thanks, Jen. Good to see you, too. Sari, are you there? I am. That was a really great conversation. Yeah, I mean, it just is so chilling. I had not appreciated that the blowback she got from the COVID restrictions did not start until Trump attacked her. Right. Right. I mean, lots of states got blowback from COVID restrictions, but what happened to her was not organic about the restrictions. It was like something deep about, you know, Trump pointing out this woman trying to take too much power and just what that unleashed and how the Republican leaders, you know, in the state, Michigan state legislature followed along and, um, you know, what that wrought in the form of this plot. You know, it's like these things are all connected. And you see that playing out in the United States Congress, too. But that was something that I hadn't appreciated until talking to her now. Yeah. I mean, it just shows you the gravity of his words. Like, it's not just a tweet. It has real effects and put people in physical danger. And it's like you said, I mean, there was obvious blowback for all the governors who imposed heavy restrictions. I mean, people were losing their jobs. There yeah, was, it's like huge economic impact. Ex- it's like a serious exactly. thing. Exactly. There, yeah. there was expected pushback and people that were very upset, but the ire that she got was so disproportionate. Right, because Trump Trump went after as a woman and then it had like sparked that reaction. But Michigan has a lot of women in power, which is really interesting. (laughs) I I don't know that people really know that or expect that from the state. Let's review. Jennifer Graham Hall was the first woman to be governor of Michigan. And then there was a Republican in power for two terms. And then Gretchen Whitmer. I read a Detroit op-ed, interestingly, recently when I was doing research for this interview with Whitmer about Granholm and a male opinion writer in the Detroit News was like, it's going to be a long time before a woman becomes governor of Michigan again. And the next time a Democrat was governor, it was a woman. And there's 
Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Dana Nessel, who is the state attorney general. There is Jocelyn Benson, who is the secretary of state. Those three women, you know, they've been managing COVID, but they also pulled off a very difficult election and very trying circumstances. Senator Debbie Stabenow. There are, you know, a number of women that represent Michigan in, in the United States Congress. It's very interesting to me. I wonder if Michiganders, having seen a woman lead the state for eight years, and then women like Gretchen Whitmer and the other women that lead there now, seeing a woman lead of that, you know, that just sort of instilled in all of them that this is a normal and good thing to have happen. And what I find so amazing and inspiring about her and what makes me optimistic about women politicians is she got all that blowback and she did not back down. I mean, I remember watching what was happening to her and thinking, oh, how's she going to handle this? What's she going to do? Is she going to back down in some ways, you know, just to show people maybe that she's heard their concerns? And she didn't, not because she's stubborn or thinks she knows everything, but because you can't negotiate with the virus, right? As she said, you know, she didn't back down because she knew she was confident she was doing the right thing. And what I see evolving in this, even just in the four years since Hillary was a candidate and she got blamed for things. And, you know, I would think, well, maybe it is her fault. Maybe we are doing something wrong. And Gretchen Whitmer, Kamala Harris, these other women politicians, they get criticized and they just keep going because they know that it's not them that's making the mistake. They know that this is just blowback. And that's a lot of progress in just four years. And it's something that women in our own lives can adapt as well. Just because you're getting criticized does not mean you're doing it wrong. Like do your due diligence, listen to criticism and take it seriously if it's well-intended and there's something you can learn from, but you're going to get a lot of noise and you just got to blow through that. And that's what she does so well. Yeah, absolutely. You think that makes her primed to maybe run someday? Well, you know, I did. I, when I was in Michigan a few months ago to um, interview her for the circus, I brought a copy of Dear Madam President, which uh, which is a letter of advice <laughs> to the first woman president. And so I wrote a little inscription. It's like, I don't know. Maybe I wrote this for you. <laughs> maybe the letter <laughs> is for you. Maybe you'll be the first woman president. But um, she's only That's in her awesome. yeah. She's only in her first term though. She has to get reelected and all of that. But yeah, she's just a really great role model. All right. All right, sister. That was a good one. Thank you to Governor Gretchen Whitmer for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer, and Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. One last thing before you go. After fact-checking my conversation with Governor Whitmer, we realized that both of us said Bill Barr was in Michigan when he likened uh, coronavirus restrictions to slavery. The event where he said that was actually held in Northern Virginia, but hosted by Hillsdale College, which is in Hillsdale, Michigan. So apologies for the mix up and thanks again for listening.